it's Peg Queen. But before we get on with the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast, I want to update you on the magazine. Oh yeah, I'm pretty stoked. We're nearing the printing stage now, and this magazine should be available for you to order by the end of October. Still, I feel like I'm going to burst if I don't share some of what's in store. So, I'll be posting some of the images and snippets on the Ashtanga Dispatch Instagram and Facebook pages all next week. Wait till you see. And why, I'm going to plug someone pretty special right now, and that's my daughter. You know, this magazine is really her baby. All the images, the layout, even the idea, hers, Megan Powell. And yeah, I'm a proud mama. You should check out her other work on MeganPowellPhotography.com. Now, I also need to say this. These podcasts and magazines also wouldn't be possible without you. Your enthusiasm, your love of practice, and your support. You totally make all of this happen. Including all the amazing teachers who are so generous with their time and their teachings. Like my guest today. Honestly, I'm still pinching myself over this interview with certified teacher John Scott. I don't remember if I even got to tell him this, but his Ashtanga yoga book was the first yoga book I ever bought. I didn't know what Ashtanga was. I didn't know who John Scott was. And quite frankly, I really didn't even know, probably still don't know, what yoga really was, is. Anyhow, true story. I just followed his book, practicing page by page, pose by pose. It would be years before I'd even know that that was the primary series. Now, besides excited, I was also completely nervous interviewing him. Not because he was once teacher to rock stars like Madonna or Sting, but because he's David Kyle's teacher. He's also pretty much a rock star. And so that meant I better not mess this one up. Luckily for me, I had two things going for me. One, Jen Renee was in the room, and so she calmed my nerves. But the other thing I had going for me was John himself. Holy cow, I hung on his every word. For over 90 minutes, John talked. Or rather, he taught. Because I wasn't just interviewing him, or I wasn't interviewing him at all, really. He was teaching. He was teaching me. Me and Jen. I've listened to this entire podcast myself about half a dozen times and taken notes. There's so much here. He was so generous in his time and his teachings. I couldn't possibly absorb it all the first time, so I just kept going back through. And I'm imagining that you're going to want to do the same. Now, I know 90 minutes is a long time for us monkeys out there to tune into any one podcast. But what John passed on during our conversation was so valuable and so precious that Chris, my producer, and I decided not to shorten it. Instead, we broke this one down into two parts. So, welcome to the Ashtanga Dispatch Podcast, Part 1, with John Scott. So I did my practice in honor of you this morning. I did the vinyasa count in my head the whole time. I really tried. Um, my friend Jen is here right next to me. She practiced. She's in from D.C. And so I don't know if you can see her. Maybe her hand. Hello, Jen. 
Hi. <laughs> but she can attest. I think I kept yes, pretty did everything right. I kept on Vinyasa <laughs> count, and I hear that that's um, a stickler for you. It is. Um, it is how Patabi Joyce taught for sixty years. Can you talk more about that? Because I will tell you, sometimes I think I'm doing the vinyasa count, but I can talk myself out of it pretty quickly. I mean, I, I'm pretty good at figuring out a way why I need something extra. We all do. When we sit, for example, to sit for meditation, we realize how slippery the mind is. And so some of us uh, need more... Um, support, more structure, more solid things to focus on to steady the mind. Some people are lucky to go straight into complete absorption. So there are many techniques of, let's say, static meditation. We could call our Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga a dynamic meditation. And so if we just talk about them both being meditations, then we can draw some parallels that if, if we sit to meditate and we can accept that the mind is slippery, let's then also accept if we stand on our mat and be dynamic through a flowing sequence of postures, our mind can also be slippery. I'm glad to know I'm not alone. <laughs> yes, it's, it is not easy for anyone. So to quote Guruji, Guruji would say this system very fine system, but very difficult. When I first started with Guruji, it was called Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga. Who called it that? I don't know. I never get to know who to ask to get that correct answer. Manju, who I'm close to, Guruji's son, said that when he and Hari, his best friend, traveled around India to different ashrams, sharing the work of his dad, it was just called yoga. Yeah, so you, you must remember currently right now we're in the age of, of styles. Styles and branding. I, I am sort of pre-styles. For example, pre-Jiva pre Mukti. So I was in Mysore at the same time that David and Sharon were in Mysore as well. Pre-Jiva Mukti Yoga. So around the time that I was practicing, there wasn't... Um, let's say, styles or branding of yoga. There was Iyenga yoga, Shivananda yoga, the work that Patabi Joyce was doing, which was called Ashtanga Vinyasa yoga, maybe by David Williams um, or um, Norman Allen, the, the first couple of Americans to, to be bringing it back to the West. Maybe they called it Ashtanga Vinyasa yoga. However, having said that, it was... Um, on the over the door of Guruji's Shala Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga Research Institute, so it was called a research institute in those days. Yeah, that got dropped, huh? That got dropped. Yeah, when 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 they moved to Gokulam, it got changed to the KPYJ, whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. So it got, the name changed when they moved to Gokulam, and so. Guruji's life was a life of, of yoga research. When I first arrived in Mysore, uh, the Western students were second on the billing. The Indian men students were downstairs and the Indian lady students were upstairs. 
we waited until the Indian men were finished before we started practicing. It was when the numbers began to grow that that priority changed and Guruji then started teaching the Indian students in the afternoon. When Guruji was was teaching in those old days, if, if we start off with the name Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga, he would then call it uh, mind control. So for him, yoga is mind control. If you weren't doing mind control, you were doing only exercising. And so he would say that it wasn't an exercise. So the, 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 the interesting thing is that through the exercise of body movements, we are aiming towards um, mind control, which is very fine and very difficult. So he then qualifies it as vinyasa. He then qualifies vinyasa as counted method. He then qualifies counted method vinyasa as a tristana. Do you see that order? Mm -hmm. Ashtanga vinyasa yoga. So we're doing yoga. Yoga is mind control. It's so interesting. I got done my practice and I had set my intention, first of all, because it was early and I knew there was no time to dick around. Um, (laughs) So I thought, well, this would be a perfect opportunity And I wasn't convinced that I could even get through without something. I don't know, um, a reason. And once I started to count, I honestly lost track of, you know, what I would usually stop and dick around with. It surprised me when I got to the end that I did it and that it worked. I think that's what surprised me, was that it worked. Guruji taught it for 60 years plus. (laughs) (laughs) Am I the one hard to convince to to move, to to trust the count, to trust the breath, to trust the practice itself? I guess that's what faith means. Yeah. So you must be, you must have a faith in the practice, a faith in the method, a faith in the teacher, and a faith in yourself, but it's not a blind faith. I think that's probably one of my, my many long list of issues would be that. You should never do something without questioning it. <laughs> well, then I'm good. Two questions. <laughs> so, that's, so that's why it's called Research Institute. It is. It was a, re- a research institute is an institute of inquiry. And the students also must be entering into an inquiry. In my inquiry, let's, we can digress a little bit. When you said about uh, the, the, it working for you and, and the breath and time, when you are in yoga, so Ashtanga Vinyasa, yoga, when you're in mind control, in mind control, there is no time. Let me explain. Most of us are unawake or still asleep or in our dream world, dream reality. If we just use the breath as the topic we're going to talk about, let's just say most people are one-dimensionally breathing, meaning 
They're breathing just because of life's survival. It's an automatic, atomic nervous system. They're just breathing. Let's then say we become aware that there is a breath, and to say that I'm breathing in and breathing out is two-dimensional. So we can have a look at my phone, for example. We can say that one dimension just has a length to it, a length of a line. Yeah. Two dimensions, if we have a look at that, is a width and a depth. Yeah. Then, so let's just say that if we look at the breath, most people don't even realize there's a breath. Then we get introduced to this breathing method, which is, is a method of breathing in and breathing out according to, to body movement, which we call vinyasa. We'll get into more detail a little bit later. If you're only breathing in and breathing out, then it's what I call two-dimensional. And two-dimensional, all, all of that is Guruji's 1% theory. When Guruji's talking about 1% theory, he's talking about knowledge as only written-down knowledge. That the 99% practice, that's the real experience. You can, you can um, translate that, this quote many, many, many ways. So for this, for this discussion, the 1% theory is just knowledge from a book, knowledge from a teacher, knowledge from a video. And the 99% practice in this case is really experiencing what it is to breathe. And so I'm talking dimensionally. And we're going to use the breath to transcend time. What dimension do we live in? Are we living in a one-dimensional world, a two-dimensional world? You know, just stuck in our own mind, in our own thoughts, in our own story. And when there's a whole world of experience out there happening. So for me, when we start getting into Ujjayi and start getting into to Bandha and start getting into counting, we're actually bringing three things into a Tristana here. We're getting bringing the body, the breath, and the mind all into a, into a singular focus. And that singular focus takes the breath from two dimensions to three dimensions. So let's go back to that picture of the phone again. If we have a look at the phone, you'll notice that the phone has, it has a length, it has a width, and it has a depth. Would you not then say that your breath could have a length? It could also have a width. And it also could have a depth, if you were to really focus about that. Yeah. So two-dimensional breath is just breathing in and out. When you start to then apply Bandha to that, and if you have the correct understanding or a more deeper understanding of Bandha, you'll start to find that you're able to direct the breath uh, into a space. Okay? So our breath is three-dimensional. We have a length to the breath, which let's just say is from the, the base chakra to the crown chakra. We have a width to the breath, which would, I call it armpits. I call it Baha Mula Bandha. The, the, the arm, David might have talked about armpit yes. Bandha. Yes. So, so armpit Bandha gives you the width, the width to the breath. So you've got a length and, and a width. And then the depth of the breath is when you've got Uriyana Bandha working for you, you're directing the breath to the back of the heart space. So then you start to feel the volume of your breath. So if we actually say that there's a volume to the breath, 
Now from just talking about breath being automatic, breath to being breathing in, breathing out, now breathing to something that's three-dimensional, we've actually got a solid breath. I'm putting a gross word to something that's very subtle. There is a solid breath. Now if we take this phone, for example, at the moment it's stationary, but it's occupying a space. When it moves, it's moving through space. So time is never separate or space is never separate. Time is in space. It's called a time-space continuum. So the fourth dimension is time. Fifth dimension, I regard that as transcending time. So what you experience from just exploring today a simple, let's say a simple technique called the count, you experience transcending time. That's so interesting. It's true. I I did lose track. Lose track of time. So I, the paradox is we're going to measure time to lose time. We're going to measure time to lose time in the sense to surpass time. Do you understand that? A, a, a yogi knows yes and no is the same thing. Down is up and up is down. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> when you when you get to that place, am I the so, only feels like Alice in Wonderland sometimes? <laughs> yes, you're going down the rabbit hole exactly. <laughs> yes. So, so let's have a look at this. If I hold that phone there like that still, and let's just go to say Van Gogh. Here we go. Here we have a Van Gogh. Okay. So I'm holding up a vase of flowers. Let's say it's Van Gogh's painting of the sunflowers. You know that painting? You familiar with that painting? I do. Yeah. Okay, so we put a frame around this, and we would then call it a still life. So a still life is an artist's impression of a moment in time. He's captured. An artist is captured in a frame a, photo a, a, photo a photographer, for example, same thing, captures a moment in time, and that time stands still. If you were in the, in the gallery looking at the painting, if that painting hasn't absolutely absorbed you into those sunflowers, and your mind is wandering you'll be aware of time passing by. What that implies is, is that if you're looking at something that's absolutely still, but time is moving, then something must be moving. What's moving? Your mind. So as the, when the mind is continuously moving, you're caught up in this concept of time. Past and future. So the construct of time is about something in the, in the future or something has passed. We're looking for that, that window between. We're trying to frame our experience in that space between past and future, which is timeless. It's a still point. It's a, a place of stillness. So... Whether we're sitting 
all moving, we're trying to transcend time. Transcend our ordinary, what I call our ordinary thinking mind. So right now, our mind's in a, well, maybe it's more focused because we have a subject. We have a subject matter. We then have a subject being technical. We're being technical about it. So what that's doing is drawing our focus into conversation. So our mind is becoming more focused and not wandering off onto other conversation. We're not digressing. So we're, so we could enter into a discussion whereby the hour will just disappear. Or it might find, we might find that that hour, we managed to do so much in that hour. So you can either compress time or expand time according to where you are in your focus. So, um, I've gone into that blank space. <laughs> well, is this in a way why when you're having fun or you're in love or you're just enjoying yourself, thoroughly enjoying yourself, absorbed in whatever you're doing, that's why time flies, right? Or it feels like it does because you have no, because you're not counting the minutes, I guess. When you, you have to nail it in the sense that you are absorbed in the, in the activity that you're in, that your mind is not somewhere else, you are engaged. And so another way of saying it is a classic, is, is a classic statement that is written by Dan Millman in his Way of the Peaceful Warrior, the conversation with his teacher called Socrates and him. And Socrates says, Dan, I've got to get you out of your mind and into your senses. So most of us aren't uh, really aware of what the senses are doing. So Pratihara is a really interesting one. There's two ways to look at Pratihara. The first way to look at it is the actual um, instrument of your senses. There's information coming in. And there's so five senses coming in and then there's five actions that go out. Of those five senses coming in, when you you have to be really careful careful to the last statement that you made because you it could be that you're gratifying the senses so when so when you're gratifying the senses that's the mind going out and seeking gratification and that's where our problem starts so for example it could have been a problem this morning uh, with the the FaceTime email, waiting for a response. Why don't we get a response back? We're so instant gratification. We want that reply now. And so when the when when the mind's going out through the senses, and also remember there's at least five of those senses. If they're all going out and are individually seeking sound, touch, sight, taste, then the mind's called distracted. When the mind's distracted, it gets too busy, too noisy, too slippery. It's just too much activity and too busy. It needs to be quieted down. So we have to sort of like take those five senses and bring them all into like a like a fiber optic broadband. That's what pratyahara initially means: is bringing all your focuses in to focus on your subject. Your subject matter, your subject technical. When you're going really technical, then we would be going down to being specific. And the specific would be um, prana, moving into and out of form when we're talking about Ashtanga Vinyasa Yoga. 
So I'll just make a little sidetrack here. My, my personal definition of vinyasa is by choice, continuously counted, choreographed, breath movement, synchronicity with consciousness of prana moving into and out of form according to the Sanatha Dharma or the universal laws of nature. The universal laws of nature is uh, birth, life, death. Rajas, Sattva, Tamas or Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Those three forces are, uh, are working on us in this manifest realm. We have been born, we're living and we are going to die. Same as an asana. An asana starts from samasthiti and returns to samasthiti. So an asana is born and it dies. We can get attached to our asanas. We can get attached to a collection of asanas. And we have to realize the impermanence also of asana. The asana is also impermanent. So when our ordinary thinking mind is clouded and misguided by all the senses, we've got to turn our ordinary thinking mind in. And what happens is that we're able to transcend the ordinary thinking mind. And we can play a little bit again with Garuti's 99% theory, 1% practice. Basically what he's saying is take 1% theory, and that 1% theory will be counted method or vinyasa, Take that 1% theory and practice it 99% and all is coming. Because you can't add the two together. You can't add 99 and 1% together to get 100% practice. Why did Guruji not say 100% practice? It's very easy. to we, if, we have a, if we have 99 apples and one banana, we can't add them together. So you can't uh, add practice and theory. But our ordinary thinking mind does. When we start to be a little bit more intelligent about the what, what was it that Guruji was saying. And so I then go, well, okay, I can understand that Guruji was saying 1% theory. There's so many percents that make up infinite amount of knowledge, wisdom. So I can understand that. But when then Guruji would say 100%, I mean 99% practice, my question would be why, why not 100% practice? Take 1% theory and practice it 100%. And then I realized that maybe because of those young Americans that first took on the practice, they did it at 110%. I okay, so the ordinary, yeah, so the ordinary thinking mind caught up with the senses gratification will in fact do more than we really need to do. So he didn't say work 60%. He was quite specific. He said 99%. And maybe that's just a little trick to make you add the 1% together. It's all encoded with an inquiry. We have to inquire into what did Guruji actually say. So I, I read Guruji backwards, as most sutras do. Take 1% theory, practice it 99%, and by the grace of God, all is coming. So Guruji's Pratihara initially is drishti, which is initially bringing the senses in and focusing them in. 
So going out from your ordinary thinking mind into your senses, so getting out of your trash of the mind into the senses, to then actually transcend your senses into, you could say, your heart. That would be the depth of your breath when you're breathing right through to the back of your heart. You are seeing all as God. And that's one of the other Guruji's real main points was that all, all is God. You are God. I am God. Everybody's God. And that's what Guruji meant by Pratihara. So we have to transcend our ordinariness. Now, what our ordinariness is, is selfishness. When we're selfish, we indi- we are, we're an individual. We individuate from the whole. We separate ourselves from the whole. That happened around about 18 months or two years of age. The baby individuates from mother. An interesting fact, when the baby is... It's uh, starting to name and form things, give name to things. The first name is dad's name, dada, before mama. And some mums get upset that dada comes out before mama. But what they don't realize is the baby doesn't see itself separate to mum. And what's really interesting is that the last name and form the baby gets is its own name. Once it understands it is separate, it's then my, my, mine, I want now. And that's where we then have the difficulties all starting to happen. Prior to that, we were in, we were in our senses. We were in essential experience. Post to, we're in storing of samskaras or past samskaras are coming up. It means it's all recorded in the ordinary thinking mind, so the the kamashayo. So all our impressions, the impressionable part of the mind is that mind that's governed by the senses. I have to stop you I just for a second. That that concept that you just said sort of blew me away. I'm a mom. You know, I have two kids, an 18, 22-year-old, you know, master's in psychology. I've been a therapist, and I've never realized what you just said, that you're right. The baby, when, when you're born, you don't see yourself as separate. You're, you're one with the mom. And that, that individuation is that separation. And I loved how you just said, how you named it, um, being, what did you say? Name and form. Yeah. Giving name and form. Individuated. Selfish. Self. Self. Yeah. Selfish. But then you also called it something else, not not significant. It was like you didn't see insignificant. Oh, I'm sorry. I've, I've forgotten the words that you used, but it was so prof- – I was just totally following you. And that was so interesting, the whole concept of what you just walked me through. I've never heard that or even thought of that and that – the whole idea of going back to that in some way of well, that's we could say yoga is about unlearning. I've heard that, <laughs> but that's how you connect it back to that. Is that right. from that point onwards, and unfortunately, we then are formed by those conditions of life, and we become conditioned in our existence, whether it's due to the culture that we've been born in, the country culture, the education 
<laughs> the politics and the religion. We are formed by that. And so that's why Patanjali talks about yoga being transcending that. So the word transcending comes in again. We have to transcend the selfish self. We have to transcend the individual self. We have to transcend the fact that we are separate to become one or to be integrated or to be uh, an individual again. An individual means undivided. In, in its original, uh, when it first, when the f and word individual was first used, it meant undivided. It now means divided. Wow. And so um, we divide ourselves out. Maybe we divide ourselves out because of the experience that we have to go through. But, but for yoga is to bring us back to that place. So when we're talking about the third sutra, to, to return to our original nature, our original nature would be pre-name and form. Because we, we have a misidentification, a misidentity. We get caught up in a false story of but, name and form. But we have the experience, going back to what you said, the experience is within us. We can... we. It's not something to learn or to look for. We've had the experience already. Yes? Yes. And so we, how do we get back to there? Yeah. So, so Guruji's practice, without digressing too far, <laughs> Guruji's, Guruji's practice, yoga, that's yoga, how are we going to achieve that? Guruji called it the method, the method of vinyasa. His vinyasa was counted method. So again, I'm saying to transcend time, we count time, or we count a physical body moving through space. So we're actually playing with object, space, and time. To transcend time is vinyasa. Okay, so remember, so all of the sutras are written in code. So encoded in, in, in this practice is, is so much to discover. 1% theory <laughs> of infinite wisdom and knowledge. How do we get to that place? So um, I have another term using Guruji's percentiles, <laughs> percentages. If you think of the, the whole population of the world, the Buddha says there is suffering. Even Patanjali said there was suffering in his way. I then calculate that maybe 96% of the global population is suffering, which leaves 4%. I then divide that 4% into 3% and a 1%. So I'd say 3% of the population, uh, let's say, not suffering, but they're not in bliss. So let's say 96% of the population are in dukkha, 3% are on the bridge, and 1% are in sukha. So sukha would be the bodhisattvas, those enlightened ones. Those ones that are really awake 24-7. Now there's a catch, a bit like the, who's that clip-clopping across my bridge? There's a goat 
crossing the bridge and there's a big beastie underneath the bridge, those that have got, those in the three percentile on that bridge could either make it or fall. So I then look at, I then look at my own personal time and I go, okay, in my personal day, let's divide it up. Of my day, how much of my time would I actually be in that one percentile place? One percent, maybe. Yeah. Ninety-six percent of my day, I'm probably in my ordinary thinking mind. Three percent of my day, I might be in that place where I have a discipline. I have a practice. I have a technique. And so the real practice on that mat is about taking that three percentile into the rest of your day so that you aren't suffering. And so there's two, two things here to look at is that the practice is so that you don't suffer, but the practice is really to then be a gift to give to others to end world suffering. So if we're just practicing for ourselves on the mat, that's still selfish. And so that's why we end up sharing the practice and sharing information about the practices because we're wanting to pass on the, the special qualities of this practice. So we're taking it, you know, so, we're, so we're, we're, we're trying to improve our life. But you'll find that it doesn't take much, the proverbial banana skin, to slip up and end up back in the 96 percentile pile where we're frustrated because the internet's gone down or... Um, flat tire in the car or there's a queue in the post office so <clears throat> I use a word in my in my classes I use a word eclipsing and right now is a really good time to talk about eclipsing because tomorrow is the dark moon and the dark the dark moon tomorrow is a potential solar eclipse so somewhere on the globe or just off the off planet Earth somewhere, the alignment would work where you would see a solar eclipse. We had one beginning of the year and best place to look at it was Norway. And I just happened to be saying this at the beginning of the week, saying, look, there's a dark moon coming up. And sure enough, that dark moon was a, an eclipse. Wow. The eclipse happens when you have the sun, moon, Earth alignment. Guruji talked about posture, free breathing, looking place. This is Tristana, really. Posture is all about alignment. Or posture is, let's say, perfect posture or, or ideal posture is a relationship of body-breath-gravity. So when we are born, going back to being a baby again, we're met with two forces. We have to support ourselves because gravity holds us. And we have to breathe for ourselves. Those two then become very closely interlinked, movement and breath and gravity. So in, 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 in my classes, I'm always referring to gravity or to earth, to foundation, to bandha. So that relationship, so, so alignment for me is when you have sterosuka, meaning that you have a steady firm foundation and you're comfortable and you have free breathing. You can only be free breathing if your body weights are aligned, i.e. your center of gravity is over your center foundation. So when your gravity is aligned that way, so 
if you can visualize it, if you're sitting, for example, in a seated meditation, you could align yourself with a, the yogis say, a straight back. I call it a vertical spine. A vertical spine is a spine that's self-supporting where gravity's not pulling it forwards, backwards, or sideways. A vertical spine would be a spine that balanced the head directly over the pelvis. But there's actually three body weights. There's the head, the thoracic, and the pelvis. We could then say head, heart, pelvis. So when, when we sit, we sit aligning head directly over heart, directly over pelvis. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see you correcting your question. <laughs> now, imagine, if you close your eyes just for a moment... So just imagine you're sitting there. Imagine that the earth is the pelvis. And just exhale deep down into the earth. Now imagine the great distance that the sun is away from earth. It's 108 times the diameter of the sun, which is a phenomenal distance. So as you inhale, feel the great distance between the head, sun, pelvis, earth. Now interestingly, just those two actions brings the heart perfectly aligned between head and pelvis. So then let's make the heart the moon. So if you're sitting there with this alignment, head sun, heart moon, pelvis earth, viewed from earth, so viewed from earth, viewed from your pelvis, looking up towards the head sun, there would be an eclipse, a nimbus or a halo or a radiance of light. And there you are sitting in your own inner light. Okay, so you have eclipsed yourself. What you're doing there is you are, the word eclipse in the English Oxford Dictionary, eclipse means two things. It means to block or to surpass. Put them together, blocking, so the moon blocks the full light of the sun. So when we're sitting here, when we sit with an aligned posture, the heart blocks the ordinary thinking mind. You then transcend, surpass. You surpass your ordinary mind. You transcend the head thinking to your heart mind. So we're talking meditation. Yoga is meditation whether you're sitting or moving. You're blowing my mind. (laughs) Thanks for tuning in to today's episode. And I hope you'll tune back in in just two weeks when we air part two of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast with John Scott. By the way, I just learned that John will be in Goa with David Kyle and Gretchen Suarez this December. Kind of makes me want to extend my trip to India another month, you know? John's whole schedule is listed on his Facebook page, which I've also posted on the Ashtanga Dispatch website. No doubt, Jen and I will be joining John on one of his weeks very soon. Speaking of Facebook, make sure you're following Ashtanga Dispatch on Instagram and Facebook next week as I begin sharing some excerpts from our next Ashtanga Dispatch magazine due out in October. If you want to help us with some of the production costs, which are kind of steep, by making a donation of $30 or more, not only would I be super grateful, 
but I'll also make sure you receive your magazine first before it even goes online. Visit ashtangadispatch.com to learn more. The Ashtanga Dispatch podcast was brought to you today by me, Pegmal Queen, along with my genius editor and producer, Chris Lucas. Check out his website at cwlucas.com and his article in the upcoming Ashtanga Dispatch magazine. And again, none of this, none of this would be possible without your love and your support. Keep sharing that dispatch love. And John and I will be back with part two of the Ashtanga Dispatch podcast in just a few weeks. Thanks, y'all.